Welcome to the inaugural season of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Mogg, co-lead of Stoll Reeves Agribusiness Food, Beverage, and Timber Industry Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe at Stoll.com, that's S-T-O-E-L.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm Kirk Mogg, one of the co-leads of the agribusiness, food, beverage, and timber team at Stoll Reeves. This morning, I'm joined by Elon Miller, founder and owner of Oregon's Umpqua Nut Farm and Umpqua Vineyards. Good morning, Elon. Good morning, Kirk. Elon is a veteran agribusiness and management executive with more than 30 years of senior leadership in corporate, government, and nonprofit sectors, and our work has spanned local, national, and international issues. We'll explore some of Elon's varied experience during our discussion today, but let's dig in. So Elon, you and your husband are directly involved in Oregon's agriculture industry. Tell us about your farming operation. Well, it's kind of a dream come true for at least me. Sometimes my husband, I think, questions <laughs> our wisdom here. But I'd always wanted to farm. And we, his family had farmed and owned some land in Oregon when we were living in different parts of the United States. And so we bought back the family farm uh, that had fallen out of the family. And it's now been about 20 years ago, we planted uh, hazelnuts on it, and we tried to commute and come back and tried to farm it at remotely, which was pretty darn difficult. Uh, so we were really pleased and we moved back full time in 2009. And so it's a hazelnut orchard. And this is the variety of hazelnuts we grow, which have been challenged, at least in the Willamette Valley, uh, because of filbert plight. But luckily, knock on wood so far, we're doing quite well down here um, with the orchard. And then about five or six years ago, we uh, decided to look at planting some uh, wine grapes. And uh, those wine grapes are on a family farm that we inherited that has been in the family since the mid-1800s. And so we now have 60 acres of grapes growing on on uh, that ranch, and they're still just in the their infancy of production so we've been we've been really happy to get involved in in the wine industry too so looking at hazelnuts and wine two of uh, Oregon's uh, industries it always fascinates me and I'm, I'm always excited talking about Oregon's agriculture industry because of the diversity of products that Oregon's agriculture industry produces you know you've talked about hazelnuts and wine grapes but in far eastern Oregon where where I grew up corn, wheat, alfalfa, onions, and, and cattle were some of the main ag commodities. And we're so fortunate to live in in a state with the richness of diversity in, in agricultural commodities. Absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting because a lot of people don't even realize I was on a call earlier this morning uh, with an individual said, oh, they grow wine grapes in Oregon? <laughs> He's from Boston. And uh, so I definitely had to uh, talk to him about uh, Pinot Noir in particular. So, Well, I know that I visited some law school friends in, in New York City a few years ago, and Oregon Pinot Noir was the rage in, in New York City restaurants at the time. It, it's really making a prominent debut across not only uh, the U.S., but 
but elsewhere as well. It's pretty exciting to have that happening here in Oregon. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've, you know, as far as the industry, we've, you know, it's very, very noteworthy. I was really surprised that uh, he had not recognized that. He actually said, I didn't know you grew grapes there. I knew you made wine. He wasn't necessarily someone from agriculture. So <laughs> so talking about folks who are not necessarily from agriculture, unlike many who followed their parents' footsteps into the ag industry, you didn't grow up in agriculture. So how did you find your way into the agriculture industry? industry? Well, I was actually uh, going to parochial school through eighth grade and started public high school in ninth grade. And there was this class called vocational agriculture where you could learn to uh, grow flowers better. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I uh, signed up for my first, it was called VOAG now, it's now called career tech education, but back then was VOAG. And so it was a an opportunity to all of a sudden open my horizons to agriculture. Fell absolutely in love uh, with agriculture uh, from technical standpoint as well as, as just through the future farmers of America at the time, now called FFA, uh, just going through that leadership process uh, with FFA, it changed my life. And uh, so that's really how I started to get involved because of that first class I was in, in uh, FFA and or vocational agriculture, and then as a member of the Future Farmers of America. What's what's one story you remember from your early days in, in VOAG classes? Well, I think probably a real turning point for me was in my freshman year, an individual by the name of Fred McClure, who was the first black national FFA officer, came to our classroom to speak. And he was so inspiring. It, it was a pretty amazing, um, you know, he spent the whole class time with us talking to us about opportunities in FFA. And I said, wow, if I could only be like him. And so that actually began my journey of working toward getting my what's now called the American degree and being able to run for national office, which I was lucky enough to be elected as a national officer, the third woman back in 1979. And it's again, it was a life changing experience. But I think I still recall and I got to get to know Fred later on in life. He he's an attorney in Texas, just a, a tremendous human being, tremendous individual, but uh, he really sparked my interest in uh, involvement in FFA. So you mentioned that you were the third woman elected to a national FFA office. Um, tell us about how the demographics of FFA have changed since those days. I'll say dramatically. Uh, I think now nearly half the uh, leaders in agriculture are women. Back then, there were very few of us that were uh, involved. And it was kind of funny, too. Uh, as part of being a national officer, we went to Japan for an international visit. Mitsui as a company sponsored our travel there. My fellow male national officers reminded me, now remember the custom is you need to walk behind us while you're here in Japan. So, you know, well then lo and behold, uh, it ended up that the chairman of the board of Mitsui had time for us in their big boardroom. And I actually gave the presentation in Japanese, three-minute presentation uh, in Japanese to the group. And so even though I might have had to walk behind folks, I was giving the presentation on behalf of my fellow national officers to, uh, to the chairman of Mitsui. So in your early days of FFA, 
women certainly were in the minority um, in the organization. And I imagine the same was true when you left college and entered the agribusiness industry. Um, Tell me, what was it like as a woman uh, entering the ag industry out of college? I was the first woman to be a sales rep of any company in crop protection on the coast of California. So it was a, you know, it was a brand new world. And yeah, there were there were issues uh, from, you know, what you might call today sexual harassment and other things that you needed to deal with and, and manage well. But I actually saw it as a real opportunity because I was unique. And as long as I continued to work as hard as I possibly could. So I, I had more technical background through internships in high school were in cotton and college. And so I really didn't know about vegetables. And here I'm in the midst of the Salinas Valley, which is the vegetable capital of the world. And then covering from Mendocino to Santa Barbara, which is, you know, we talked about diversity of crops, all kinds of crops. So I spent a lot of time in the field with pest control advisors that I was calling on to learn. And I think that actually allowed me as a woman, because I was a novelty, I think I, I wasn't what they expected. And then when all of a sudden I was able to find solutions for them uh, from a technical standpoint, I think it actually gave me a huge advantage. Um, I ended up my second year as a sales rep. It was for Shell at the time uh, when they had an ag division. Uh, second year, I got what was called the the Silver Plowshare Award. It was kind of the number two award uh, nationally as a sales rep. So again, there were barriers, but as long as you fa- face those barriers, and and I learned a lot from going into something new and digging in really hard to be able to understand and uh, be able to really make a difference. Um, Again, maybe back to that FFA training that I had. It was really rewarding. How would you say the ag industry has changed since you entered it? There definitely are, I think, more women in leadership roles. But I think every company continues to struggle with looking at diversifying um, in in a more traditional setting for the folks to be able to attract and retain individuals. Through my career, I had had an opportunity to serve in large companies uh, where we would have different um, diversity networks where we would, uh, in fact, I was, was Asia Pacific when I was running Asia Pacific for Dow's ag business. Um, we had a network from an Asian standpoint to understand cultural differences and focus and be able to look at how can we recruit folks in Japan or China and have them move to, to the United States for career development opportunities. I think we in agriculture need to always continue to look at uh, diversity and making sure that we are reflective of the various opportunities and uh, individuals that we deal with on a, a global basis, if we're a global company or even locally as a local farmer. Yeah, I like to think about it in terms of we need more young people pursuing careers in agriculture, not fewer. And how do we as an industry make sure that every young person who has a passion for agriculture feels welcome and feels like there's a place for them within the industry? And the more we can promote that message, I think we will expand the the diversity of, of folks involved in, in our industry. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think too, especially 
when we look at farmers and the average age of the farmer um, and how we can look at attracting from a business and industry standpoint as well as a production agriculture farming standpoint, I think we're all going to be better off. And what's what I think is really interesting is, again, I'm you know a huge champion, no surprise to you, of looking at ag education and, and FFA. And for me, clueless city kid, too scared to raise her hand in the classroom um, to what that organization gave me and opened my horizons to agriculture. It was, uh, I think, even if students go through a program and are not necessarily destined to go into agriculture, that awareness level of agriculture um, is, I think, very, very critical and very important. So let's switch gears for a second and uh, swap stories. Tell me about your favorite job experience. I've been really blessed in my career. I've had a lot of fun, a lot of fun jobs. Probably when I actually was running Asia Pacific for Dow. It was it was really interesting because there was some interesting cultural challenges, uh, particularly as a woman in Japan. That was that was one that was a big deal and we ended up doing a, a joint vit- venture with Mitsubishi there and negotiating that JV deal and all that as as uh, as a woman sitting at the table because there were certainly were no women on the Mitsubishi side sitting at the table that to the diversity of India and uh, dealing with uh, agricultural in India through and then China and Southeast Asia so that was really fun and again going into a situation where you don't necessarily have a lot of experience but learning through that and uh, that constant learning opportunity but that was that was really fun what about you Kirk so I spent three summers uh, living and working in Washington DC for FFA's Washington League leadership conference. We would have 500 high school students from across the country, a different group, show up every week in D.C. for seven or eight weeks over the course of the summer. Most of these students had never been in a building taller than maybe a couple of stories. They'd certainly uh, never been to the U.S. Capitol, at least most of them. Uh, Many of them had never been on a plane. And to be part of a team of 14 or 15 college age conference facilitators being able to experience our nation's capital with these ag students from all across the country um, what an incredible experience for somebody that that grew up 17 miles from a town of 1500 people uh, for someone who had nine students in his eighth grade class to be working in our nation's capital was just an incredible incredible experience I, I think the other job experience and and I'll focus on a, a narrow aspect of it but I grew up working on my family's farm in in eastern Oregon but I think the favorite experience there was the summer after I graduated from eighth grade, I became a full-time summer employee on the farm. And that was so cool to to finally uh, be a, a full-time employee on the family farm. And I was making $3 an hour. Um, I was so excited about that. I had the incredible experience of growing up working alongside my parents and particularly my grandparents. Everything that I learned to do on the farm, I learned to do from my grandfather, which was a, a remarkable experience, and, and I'll always cherish that, that, that memory. That's beautiful. So you mentioned Neat. that 
uh, you and your husband grow wine grapes. You are also the chair of the Oregon Wine Council. Tell us a bit about that organization. Well, it's a fairly new organization. Uh, We represent, I think, now about 60% of the Oregon wine grapes grown, produced, and sold in the state. And we uh, formed, basically, there were some some issues, uh, inter-industry issues, I'll call them, in the 2019 legislative session. And there were a lot of folks who were pretty concerned about what was going on. And so we, as the Oregon Wine Council, formed in in August of, of 2019. And we now are working hand-in-hand with the Oregon Wine Growers Association, which is the long-time standing association representing uh, wine. Within the Oregon Wine Council, we had a more extensive breadth and depth of, of the industry. And because our membership is different than the Oregon Wine Growers Association, we were able to, I think, bring a broader focus to what was happening in Salem tough year in Salem this year. After we had come off of COVID with wine tasting rooms closures, uh, as well as as then we had the huge fires <laughs> at the end of the year um, last year that Oregon had not experienced fires like that, you know, obviously from all industries that were impacted, but the wine industry, just understanding what effects smoke would have and dealing with those kinds of issues. So we came off of the economic impact of the COVID, economic impact of the smoke, and then into this legislative session, which has been very difficult, potentially raising taxes on wine and and lots of other things. But I think we've been relatively successful in being able to deal with some of those challenges that faced us through this legislative session and look forward to, uh, let's say we look forward to uh, the interim and uh, looking at, at opportunities for the industry going forward. For those of our listeners that might not be familiar with the effects or the potential effects of smoke on wine grapes, tell us a little bit about smoke taint. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because the word taint is, you know, sounds pretty bad, right? There is more and more science going into this. There's a organization, let's say we've been working with California and Washington, and let's say UC Davis, Washington State, Oregon State, on the science of it, okay, trying to answer some questions on the science of it. There were people, they were wineries who did outright reject grapes this last year. But at the same time, there's a lot more information that's available on how you could mitigate uh, from having some of the the potentially negative effects of smoke um, with wine. And so as the science progresses, people are learning a lot more uh, about being able to still utilize some of those grapes. But at the same time, if you've got a brand and you have you're a well-known brand in the marketplace, even though I'm a grower, of course, I want them to buy my grapes. But the worst thing that could happen is if those grapes were not going to end up producing a high quality bottle of wine. So it's important that at the end of the day for Oregon as a whole, for different companies and their brands to make sure that we have the highest quality wine output. And so with, you know, again, and there's a lot of science to it. If you're at a higher elevation versus a lower elevation, new smoke, old smoke, I mean, there's 
all kinds of things. And there has to be tests that are done. And in fact, crop insurance requires you to have some tests. And the labs were overrun last fall. So we were, we were able to get some additional funding for OSU to be able to supplement some of the, tes- the testing at their facility because the private labs weren't able to run things through quickly enough. So anyway, we've learned a lot and we'll continue to learn more because at this stage, I'm not sure we're going to see some of the fire issues going away. So it sounds like the industry is doing a lot of work to understand the relationship between smoke and grapes and ultimately the wine that's produced. And and, and maybe one of the takeaways here is uh, not to just assume that those effects are necessarily negative or can't be mitigated, but to, to think about how smoke, just like any other factor, moisture, soil, temperature, affects the ultimate bottle of wine that comes off of a vineyard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well put. So outside of issues related to smoke and uh, COVID closures of tasting rooms, what are other issues that are keeping folks in the wine industry up at night? Well, I think labor is number one. Availability of labor. Obviously, during COVID, we we actually wrote our own guidelines um, to keep our workers safe um, and, and submitted those to Oregon Health Authority and OSHA on how we would go about doing that. But availability of labor is 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 huge. And so how to deal with that going forward. There was an overtime bill in the legislature um, that would get basically force agriculture to have overtime pay. And we were very concerned about that piece of legislation. And uh, ultimately, we, we don't know what's going to be happening um, before a signy die in a week or two. But it may, it's going to be an interim discussion, I'm sure. Water is a big issue. Uh, we on our farm uh, in our vineyard are trying to look at uh, growing at dry land. But you still have to get those little grapes started. <laughs> so those first few years, you've got to be able to, to get some water to them. But the water issue is also, I think, a, a big issue. Some of our members in Southern Oregon are uh, certainly in, encountering uh, some water shutoff dates that uh, are going to be very problematic for production this year. So I think water is another high priority. And then I'd say just a third big bucket is... You know, when you, when you are dealing with, whether you're dealing with Congress or you're dealing with a f- leadership in Salem, not too many people understand agriculture. And so it's, I think, a, a constant need for, for those of us in agriculture to continue to make people aware of the issues that are, we're facing. We're, we shouldn't be the only voice at the table. Others should be part of that discussion. But at the same time, sometimes uh, our voice is not as well heard, maybe because we're not articulating it well enough. So I think that will continue to be an issue uh, for agriculture going forward. On the topic of water, I noticed that there was a report that came out of OSU recently, Oregon State University, studying the potential ability to reduce water to grapes or the fact that it may be possible to grow high quality grapes or comparable quality grapes with less water. And so I guess I just look at studies coming out of places like OSU and and I'm reminded by the importance of the investments that, that the state makes in research so that we can continue to have robust agricultural industries that contribute to our, our economies, particularly our local rural economies, and, and make sure that those investments in research uh, continue. 
I couldn't agree more. Uh, on our hazelnut orchard, we made the decision, and it was probably one of the best decisions we made when we put the orchard in to go ahead and use micro sprinklers. And nobody had put in micro sprinklers in a hazelnut orchard when we did, but it reduced the volume of water needed dramatically, and it still allow and it allows for um, very productive very, very productive um, orchard as far as total volume, as well as quality too and nut fill and other things. But it, uh, again, the new technologies, uh, when we take a look at what's going to be happening in the future, I serve on a, a company board that's in the blueberry industry. And where either from a university standpoint or or even through private research, um, mechanization to allow for mechanization of blueberry picking for fresh, for the fresh market. And that would be, you know, how to deal with the genetics to make that happen and, and other things. But again, th to deal with a labor issue as part of it. Right now on wine grapes, it's pretty darn expensive to be, you know, looking at a mechanization from a harvest standpoint. But it, as as time goes on, more information can be provided and, uh, again, relying on Oregon State and other universities for those kinds of uh, assistance. Trade associations are abundant in the agriculture industry. I think, you know, historically, like the Oregon Farm Bureau or or even American Farm Bureau as being one of those longtime prolific grassroots uh trade associations. Why are trade associations so abundant in the agriculture industry? I think because of the uniqueness of our uh, various crops, honestly. Um, certainly where we can all gather together. Um, I learned a lot this year about uh, working in Salem and the need for coalition building with all the various entities. And so from an agricultural standpoint, Oregon Farm Bureau would gather everyone together for, okay, where can we find some common ground on some, some decisions? But but each industry is, is pretty darn unique uh, from a technical standpoint. Um, so that Advocacy needs to include, um, okay, advocacy for research, advocacy for some other things. And so I think that's why there are, are so many different um, industry associations. Having grew up, I grew up in my career in agriculture in Arizona, but then moved to California after, after uh, college. And uh, yeah, I learned the plethora of, uh, of various ag organizations down there. Um, but Oregon, um, because of its, uh, its variety of agriculture, also has a lot of different organizations. Board service is one of the consistent themes that we see uh, over the course of your career throughout your resume. You're one of the newer members of the Oregon Board of Agriculture. What's something that surprised you about that board? Well, unfortunately, I have only been able to meet with them virtually, so I have not yet met any of my fellow board members. So that's been unique, serving, uh, you know, advising the director on, on issues uh, without having really had a chance to meet any of my fellow board members. But I think, the, again, the breadth of what the Department of Agriculture uh, does from a from regulatory to assistance to promotion and encouragement of agriculture in the state is uh, is very broad and it's very important and uh, and again do all of us as farmers I certainly didn't have the 
understanding of how important a role the Department of Ag plays for agriculture as well as for the consumer, making sure things are safe, making sure things are going well, and making sure that, that you know, we in agriculture are doing the right thing. So, so I, I will say, stretch my horizons on some technical aspects of learning about cougar deprivation, which I never really thought too much about before and probably should have before I got into the Board of Ag, but uh, dealing with, you know, varying policies across the board, let alone what we've talked about with water and labor and other high priority issues. You know, you've spent most of your career in the private sector, Dow Chemical, Dow AgriScience, and now um, owning and operating a family farm. Um, But you also did a stint in government serving as EPA Regional Administrator for Region 10, uh, covering Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. What was that experience like? It was great. It's interesting because a lot of people think, wow, how can you you know, be in the private sector, and then how can you actually be in government? And is there a conflict there? Is there anything? And I've actually never seen a conflict. And instead, let's just say I really grew as a as a individual. Um, my first government experience was actually in California when I was director of the Department of Conservation, as well as I helped form Cal EPA and was part of the Department of Pesticide Regulation as its chief deputy. And so I had experience in government. Uh, It was a state government situation, certainly. So when um, I was asked to step into the regional administrator position, at least I had some knowledge of how that, how it works. One of the things I think that is important in any kind of position of leadership is being able to gather people together and really look at what strategic direction uh, we should be thinking about. Now, EPA has all its statutory mandates, and there's that construct that you have to be in alignment with. But there's a lot of gray area, what emphasis you have, how you should be looking at spending the money, how you should be resourcing different things in different ways. And so for the first time at Region 10, we went through actually a strategic planning effort. And with that, I had asked a team of the group to put together a survey. And it was the first time all employees of Region 10, uh, which I think we had about 600 of them, were asked, what could be improved? (laughs) What could be different? What could we do better? What, you know, you know, just the typical SWOT analysis of uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. We had an 80% return rate on that survey, 80%. And I read every every single comment. And from that, we formed a strategy that everybody was able to get behind and kind of get united behind. And so looking at government, folks in government are are hardworking individuals and very well-intentioned individuals. And at least what I found um, were very interested in looking at how things could be improved uh, going forward versus, I think, some of the stereotypes um, that you might have of people in government that might be just exactly the opposite. What was one of your proudest accomplishments as EPA regional administrator? Well, I think probably the most rewarding that time I had, when I stepped in 
as regional administrator, there were some real challenges with the region. And at the time, the administrator, you know, wanted me to kind of look into it and deal with it. Well, I was actually greeted by protesters. Uh, there was a, a activist group that was meeting in Seattle, and they were uh, folks were dressed up as as crustaceans <laughs> down in the lobby, and you know, because I came from industry, and that must be evil. That I was greeted with that. Well. Maybe because of the strategic planning efforts, maybe because of the decisions we made on enforcement, which, hey, if you've got to live by the rules. And so from an enforcement standpoint, um, that, you know, we needed to do what we needed to do. When I left EPA, they threw a kind of farewell for me and a couple hundred employees showed up. It was and they gave me this book, and it's the, I have it up here on the shelf, and it's the most heartwarming piece because I think even though I think many of my team felt, oh, my gosh, what are we getting ourselves into? She was with Dow and Shell a long time ago, and this is going to be awful. Come to find out, we worked very well together, and we really, we really moved the peg on a variety of different issues, um, whether it be some of the Superfund issues we got closure on to get behind us on some of the litigation working with the Department of Justice in the negotiations. Um, but anyway, long story short, it was very rewarding. And to be able to see that at the end, I think, uh, was probably my still is a little emotional from my standpoint. So you're a bit of a unicorn in that you were appointed a regional administrator by a Republican president, George W. Bush. Uh, you were recently appointed to the Oregon Board of Ag by Oregon's Democratic governor, uh, Kate Brown. What, what about your experience and history do you think allows you to be someone who's uh, appointed by a Republican president and a, a Democratic governor? I was always kind of an un <laughs> because being in, in public policy issues, when I was running the business for Dow, certainly the, the public policy thing was not the big deal. But if you are a, a lobbyist, which I have been through my career, I ran a trade association through my career, I headed up public affairs globally for Dow as a career, I always let's just say was nonpartisan. I was very business oriented. I had very strong views as far as, as you know, what I thought made sense. But from a partisan standpoint, I wasn't. It was interesting when I was uh, selected to become the uh, regional administrator for EPA. Two of the bluest of blue states, Oregon and Washington, and two of the reddest of red states, Idaho and Alaska. And so it just required an ability to to be able to work with um, both sides of the aisle, which I just wish there was more of these days. And uh, we could kind of get back to what it was when I started into the kind of the public policy arena. There was a lot of statesmen and a lot of uh, ability to together. I just hope maybe I'm being naive, but I, I feel an opportunity is there for all of us to make that happen again. You know, your your work on the nonprofit side has extended beyond the U.S. borders. Uh, tell us about your work with Cultivating New Frontiers in Agriculture. Great. It's uh, we call it CNFA, Cultivating New Frontiers in Agriculture. And I was recruited to the board, oh, let's uh, about eight or nine years ago. It's an entity that does agricultural development work, helping smallholder farmers um, throughout the world, but most of our work is in Central Asia and Africa. 
Uh, we've got about a $50 million budget, annual budget, um, to do that work, funding coming from uh, various foundations as well as as uh, USAID and various governments that, like uh, the German government that does work um, in different parts of, of Africa. A couple of my fellow board members, uh, former Secretary of Ag Espy um, from the Carter administration or the Clinton administration, and then uh, <clears throat> former Secretary uh, Jack Block from the Reagan administration. So again, we try to be bipartisan, former congressman on it. I was lucky enough to be elected a few years ago as its chair. And again, it's uh, my husband and I have travel to seven African countries where we go out into villages and it's really teaching basics of agriculture, uh, whether it be helping with some irrigation issues, fertilization issues, uh, pest management issues, even looking at marketing and, and promotion uh, of goods and in, into the city areas. But it's um, it's been really rewarding. I had always wanted to um, do some of that work throughout my career and come to find out after I stop full-time work, I have some time to be able to get that accomplished. So, Elon, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always great talking with you. I, I always leave our conversations more optimistic about the future of agriculture in Oregon and beyond. Well, thank you, Kirk. And also, I'll throw it back to you. Um, leaders like you are, are have been, even though you're a lot younger than I am, um, you've been a mentor to me since I've been in Oregon. And I very, very much appreciate um, having a chance to, to work uh, with you, as well as others, uh, since I've as still a newbie in the state of Oregon. Well, thanks, Elon. Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit stoll.com. That's S-T-O-E-L.com. Please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is not legal advice, and the podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship.